Monday, March 10th, 2014, and this is episode 58 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and as usual, joining me tonight is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. Thankfully, I'm nowhere near Malaysia. Uh, yes, yes. But um, yeah, thankfully, Bob isn't either. Hey, uh, he did ask me to pass along a very important recommendation I am on all a Twitter to hear it. <laughs> so if, uh, particularly if you're an active directory shop and suddenly you start experiencing mass numbers of accounts being locked out, the appropriate response should not be to turn off the account lockout policy. Hmm. Hmm. But then the problem goes away, doesn't it? Well, yes, I suppose. Help desk tickets go down. In in the same way that a uh, you know an itchy toe can be solved by cutting off your leg. <laughs> ah, Bob. Words of wisdom. Yep. So, a uh, little bit of housekeeping before we get into the show or into the stories tonight. Uh, first thing is. Next week, you'll start hearing hopefully a little bit of improvement in the audio. I I went and invested in some actual real live audio equipment. And that's that's kind of the the first of a number of changes we have coming up. And, you know, we'll be uh, we'll be talking about those as as they come up. But, um, you know, one thing that we did recently was post uh, a link to the show on Reddit and I'll tell you, we we got a lot of feedback, and, you know, a lot of comments, a lot of exposure, and I think we actually gained about two more listeners. So we're about up to 10 now. But anyway, we're still working through some of that feedback and lots of really good suggestions. So uh, if you are here because of Reddit, welcome to the show. Hopefully you find this useful. Although the audio may improve, we make no guarantee that the actual content will improve. Well, that's true. That is true. I couldn't find anything on Amazon to help that problem. Mm. Uh, anyhow. They stopped selling the co-host in a box. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did. So oh, wow. the first story we have tonight is from Network World. And this is back to our old friend Target. Uh, it seems the CIO of Target has abruptly resigned. Uh, in the wake of the, uh, well, the breach. And there's there's a really interesting article titled, The CIO Not the Only One to Blame for Target Breach. And this article kind of goes on and on. And I'll tell you that the net of it is a Gartner analyst is basically saying that the QSA ought to take some culpability here. And I have to tell you, I think this is a very pervasive problem in the information security world where 
everybody thinks that somebody else is responsible. You know, the, the company thinks the QSA has done a thorough job. The QSA thinks, hey, I'm just here doing a, you know, kind of a high level flyover point in time audit. And, you know, everybody's just kind of dysfunctional in this relationship. And I see it, you know, I see this kind of thing in so many different venues and it's, it's really disappointing. I would say it goes further than that too, which the CIO in or CISO or whatever the role may be who owns security in all with the best of intentions goes to management and says, I need X, Y, and Z. Management says you can have X. Then who's responsible? Yeah, that's a good point. Right? So, you know, one thing that I'm kind of jump ahead of just for a moment here and kind of give you my comments on reading this is, you know, I think I read recently the average stint of a CIO or a CISO is around two years for a Fortune 500 company. That's a really small amount of time to actually get anything done. Yeah. In, in big picture infosec for a large company in flight. You know, first six months, just getting the lay of the ground, getting politics, figuring out what's going on, figuring out what's going to work and what doesn't work. Uh, you know, start to execute at the next budget cycle. By the time you're actually implementing stuff, you're out the door. Yeah, that's a really good point. I see, I see two different models in, in these kinds of executive positions. You have one model where the CIO is kind of a long-term fixture. And I don't really don't know if Target is that way or not. But the other model is that the CIO is what I like to call a whistle-stop tour of the executive development program. Yeah. And, you know, they, they will stop off at the CFO, the COO, the CIO uh, to make them very well-rounded. And I, and I suspect it has a lot to do with succession planning and building a pipeline for, for you know, potential senior leadership. But in this particular case, Beth Jacobs, who was the target CIO, um, she had been there for, I think, six years. She started in 2008. So kind of by your, your math, she's been there yeah. you know, a lot longer than average. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, what was interesting and, and what makes me think that potentially Target is, you know, the, the kind of company where this is a whistle-stop type position, even though she was there for a long time, is that apparently she was not very technical. And the, th the thinking, and now I don't know how, how valid this article is, right? But they're basically saying that uh, because she wasn't technical, she was stepping aside so that somebody who was technical could come in and help Target kind of right their ship. Well, that opens a whole can of worms on how technical does senior leadership need to be, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, having key technical folks on board. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's one thing, a little off topic, but it always drives me crazy when the CEO of a company, whether it be a tech company or whatever, is asked to go testify to Congress. Right? Let's say they're an InfoSec company or whatever. I assure you the CEO is not the most technically capable around whatever topic they're being discussed. Yeah, or if he or if he was, he's he's ten or fifteen years out of date. Right. And it always boggles my mind of a CEO has a lot of skill set and, and they do a lot of valuable things for a corporation, but they're probably not the one to present, unless it's a small niche company, 
you know, the company's cutting edge views on something to Congress. It's probably like a chief scientist or, or a CTO or something along those lines. So I always chuckle when I see that. Unless it's, you know, like a company like Mandiant or something like that. But even then, you know, once you get into those executive ranks, you have so many more things to worry about. You don't necessarily, you can't be that technical any longer. That's just part of, you know, moving up the chain of management. That's true. Although I think you have to, especially in a CIO kind of role, you've got to, you've got to have some amount of technical acumen to help make sure you've got a, you know, a vision yeah. for, for where you want to take things. And, and it might not be down at the you know, really detailed nuts and bolts level. I don't know. Every CIO I've worked with, they just whatever magazine article they read last is ah <laughs> uh, the Dilbert future, right? But back to this, you know, it makes you wonder how empowered are these CIOs? How much budget control do they really have? Right? You know, how much are they really being handed to work with, and how much can they control? And one thing that reminded me of is like key senior sales positions at a company. You know, sales leadership comes in. The product may not be ready. It may not be able to be sold yet. Yet, that salesperson is on the hook regardless. So, you know, my advice is if you want to go be a CIO or a CISO, make sure to vet that company's existing security before you sign on board to have some idea what you're walking into because you may not be able to change it. Yeah, and, and not only that, I mean, you become, you know, it's, you as soon it. as you step in, you own yeah. it. So That's a good good point. Um, not surprised they dismissed the CIO. Don't know if that's what the problem really was, though. You don't know how much that CIO is screaming for more resources. Absolutely. Trying to put on problems. So, anyway. Or, or or was being managed up inappropriately. I mean, that's yeah. I, potentially one of the downsides of, of not being very technical is if you surround yourself with the wrong people, mm-hmm. you, you may be getting a filtered message. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we absolutely don't know what the what the real source of the problem was here. No question. All right. So the next story we have comes from CSO Online. And the title is Rogue Ads Overtake Porn as Top Mobile Malware Attack Method. And the headline to me here is that uh, in 2013, Bluecoat found that 20% of mobile malware was a result of malicious ads versus 16.5% from pornography. And, you know, this, I guess, is kind of following the same maturity curve, but on an accelerated timeline is regular PCs. You know, there was a time when pornography was the really dangerous place. And, you know, people quickly moved to legitimate sources because that's where the people are. And, And so the takeaway for me here is that it's not a behavioral problem, right? If you're you, you can't you can't just tell people, you know, stay away from sites that have malicious ads like you can tell them to stay away from pornography, right? Because you have no idea. You know, if the only upside on mobile is it's not a drive by download. They actually at least have to interact with it in some way at this point in general for most of the malware. But yeah. You know, it goes back to the old mantra of you might as well assume all sources of interwebs is evil. Right. And and how do you protect? You know, it's good to know this stuff. It's good to understand what the trends are. But how are you going to protect your phone? 
you know, or your mobile device uh, against this malware. You know, this also pairs with, uh, I read a report the other day that 99%, which makes me very cautious about believing this report, but 99% of all malware observed last year was on Android. So, yep. I, I mean, take it with a grain of salt because anything that has that large of a statistical outlier makes me wonder. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you know, th- there's a lot of... On, on that particular front, there's a lot of mudslinging back and forth because you you often see uh, certain people come out and say that you know Android is way more secure than iOS, and and then you'll see a statistic like that which just totally doesn't mesh. And and, and you know the one thing I've come to to realize is that in the mobile space, I, which I suspect is a result of the high growth rate, everybody has an agenda. Yeah. Well, and you know, it is true that Apple much more tightly controls their App Store than Android's Google Play Store. And so it is a lot easier in theory to sneak a malware into the Google ecosystem. However, the flip side of that is you also have a lot more freedom and functionality uh, and customization on the Google side of the house with Android. Yeah, you know, I've often thought, you know, back back when I was, uh, you know, a, a young pup, <clears> or <throat> maybe not a young pup, right? But the the iOS Android thing reminds me so much of the PC Mac. Sure. It's the same, same debate. You got one, you know, open platform, lots of customization, and one closed platform. That's right. highly controlled. Absolutely. It's the same. And, and you know, it, it, it was also the same as, at least in the, the the maturity life cycle of it right now, everybody mm-hmm. or every company thinks you better be running, you know, some kind of security software on your Android. And in general, there isn't even much security software available. Yeah, for it's all. You know, so so what are your takeaways? Assume your phone's gonna get, you know, popped. Well. I, from an enterprise standpoint, I think you really have to to think about exactly that, right? I mean, you, you can't trust. You, you've got to apply the right level of trust, put it that way. <laughs> but that's at direct odds with the BYOD initiatives going on. And well, it's a tough problem. I it don't is know. a tough problem. But I think there are some, you know, some opportunities, whether it's something like Good. I'm not necessarily right. You know, whoring a solution, but and for know. the record, good software. If you haven't heard of it, is a maker of software for managing mobile devices, much like a mobile iron or Semantics Mobile or other things like that. Right. And there's lots of there's there's a ton of players in this space, and they all have you know different niche markets right now, but or, or niche features, but. Um, you know, it is a it's a very difficult problem, and I don't think we've really fully come to realize all of the risks yet. You know, because I I think fr- from a lot of what I follow, right, a lot of the risk from a mobile perspective is at a you know at a personal level, stealing stealing yeah. your bank account credentials and stuff like that. I don't think that it's become a mainstream target for you know. Corp- attacks on corporations and, and enterprises, but I think that's just, you know, a, a, a point on the maturity curve, and I would imagine that's going to change over time. Yeah, I absolutely will change over time. I, I I would bet on it, and I'm somewhat predicting 
a BYOD backlash of some variety. Either companies getting more restrictive, employees saying, I don't like the fact that you can wipe my device at any time. I don't know. We'll see. I, I, we haven't yet seen the other shoe dropping on BYOD and mobile device management. And it just seems to me like we are kind of in a honeymoon phase that is definitely going to bite some folks soon. But we'll see. I, I know we've kind of wandered a little bit off topic of the story, but yep. you know, at the end of the day, uh, we need to be aware of this stuff and be aware that it's now highly likely that phones can get malware and realize that when, you know, for, for a long time that was theoretical. Right. Yep. And uh, that's why I'm going back to my Symbian-based phone. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say Windows Mobile. I almost went the BlackBerry route, but, you know. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Our next story is also from CSO Online, titled... Oh. Can I say one other thing? I apologize. Yeah, go Just ahead. One other thing. You know, the other thing I find very interesting about Android versus iPhone is iPhone users far and above patch much more regularly and quickly on iOS releases than Android releases. And I'm not talking about just the fact that the Android release can't run on their current hardware. I mean, for whatever reason, between these two ecosystems, I think it has a lot to do with ease of use on the Androids or on the Apple side. People patch their Apple phones much more often than they patch their Android phones because it's being controlled by the manufacturer, not the carrier. Yeah, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. You know that Android's a really complex ecosystem when it comes to right. patching because. Like you said, not it's not always available on all platforms, but but even so, in in every case, it's up to the carrier to, right. to publish the update. And I am certainly not an Apple fanboy, but what that results in is that in general, Apple users are on the latest rev much more quickly and much more reliably than Android users to fight security issues. Yeah, and and I guess before I'll, I'll cut everybody off at the pass I understand if you're on the Google Nexus hardware you, you you probably get the updates right away but you know I think the point is that uh, you know the point's valid right as soon as Apple releases an update assuming assuming your phone is supported it shows up as an available update so iOS 7.1 came out today and a lot of people have already patched I mean it's it is what it is. Anyway, sorry. Anyhow. Beat that one to on. the ground. Yes. Next story, CSO Online, five things to know about malware before driving it out. Oh, this story just oh, made my head explode a little. Yeah. I mean, there's this, this is like one of those love-hate kind of stories. So I'm going to go through one at a time, and we'll talk about them. So their first thing to know about malware before driving it out is intent. And I'll summarize their what they're thinking here is that not all malware is created equally, right? There's some malware which is much more aggressive and malicious than other malware. I mean, some malware is, is just there to redirect your searches or to pop up ads or things like that, while other malware is intending to steal your passwords and, you know, open your computer up as a remote access or road administration tool. And being able to 
identify which is which will save you some time and, and enable you to focus on the things that are really risky versus, you know, being mired down in, uh, in trying to fix everything. Yeah. So, Mr. Bell, question for you. The point of this article is to apply your resources in the right area at the right time, in essence, right? Because you can't chase everything. And right. I, I agree with that point, right? Yep. How do I determine intent of malware until I analyze it? That is exactly where I was going to. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're, you are absolutely right on. How do you know? And, and not only that, if, you know, let's say somebody, you know, has lots of, uh, lots of pop-ups on their computer, they're probably doing dumb stuff <laughs> that, is, that is quite likely exposing them to other things, which is less obvious. And I think you are right on, and, and that's one common theme that goes through almost all of their recommendations, is that it presumes that you have some awareness about what the malware is. And, and they kind of, I, I would say, give a, a, cockamamie is a strong word, <laughs> but, you know, they, get, they kind of give some really thin advice right so well it's not as actionable as i think it should be right it, it it's it's great in theory right but but in practice i'm going all right assuming i got FireEye and dabala and you know a bunch of other nice things carbon black and you know i've got you know mandiant and i've got hp garrett i've got every forensic tool on the planet i still have to spend some time looking at it Right. And if the point of this article is don't spend your time looking at everything, I'm having trouble following their logic. Y yeah, you really haven't saved a lot. I mean, I guess the only thing I could say is if, you know, if you got all kinds of crap flooding through your your fire eye, you can you can you know, bifurcate what's being found into, you know, the agreed. But know, here's my one other point and then we'll get back to the article. Typically, at initial compromise, it's a dropper that can pull multiple types of malware. Amen, brother. So if I see anything being pulled down to a host and I ignore it because what got pulled down was pretty relatively innocuous, what happens Dangerous. the next time you pull something down that's, that's you know, not innocuous? So It's a dangerous assumption. It you is. Know, All right. And, and part of the reason I wanted to talk about this was because I th I think there's some valid, there is some validity, and it's really the last one. But um, <laughs> the other thing is that, in in my view, it's important to really understand what the landscape really is, and so that was why I wanted to talk about it. You know, somebody coming across this article, you know, may may read it and take it more to heart. But, but anyway, their, their, uh, their next thing to know about malware before driving it out is targets, right? So is, your, is the malware you're seeing in infecting targets that are important? Like, are they on, you know, the CEO's laptop or are they on your administrator's systems or are they on your servers? That sort of thing. You know, where, where is the virus happening 
And, and again, there's peril in that assumption because I have seen on numerous occasions, far more than I care to, for, sorry, far more than I care to count where the initial point of entry is on just a average Joe's computer. Yeah, then it goes right? lateral. And then it goes lateral. And by the way, yeah. when it goes lateral, it's not malware anymore. You know, they're using valid logins and whatnot. So, so again, there's a lot of peril in only paying attention to things that are, you know, quote, important. Now, certainly, if you see malware on your Exchange server, you know, that's... <laughs> You know, you want you obviously want to treat that more, you know, more aggressively, right? But I don't think you, sh in my view at least, should uh, stand down because it's uh, you know it's somebody in uh, in marketing versus uh, you know somebody in your IT team. I agree. I'm I'm gonna have to get some duct tape to start wrapping my head to keep it from exploding. <laughs> okay. Well, you're gonna like this next one even more. The next. The third thing to know about malware before driving it out is knowing the source. And, and basically what they're talking about is figuring out where the malware came from. Because, you know, it if the malware comes from a server in China, it's way worse than if it comes from a server, let's say, in New Jersey. Because, you know, the Chinese... Or the you know the Jersey's Jersey people can't figure out how to. You know. Do you know what the problem is with Chinese malware? Uh, the double byte characters. As soon as you clear it off, twenty minutes later, you're ready for another one. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe you just went there. I did. I did. So, I, I I'm just no. All I can say is no. Yeah. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> This, looking at the source of the malware is not a good idea. I mean, God, just look at the debate that has been raging for three years now about attribution. Including this past RSA. I had a buddy give a talk on it. There you go. So, yeah. No. Attribution is hard. Don't rely on it. <laughs> All right. Now, that being said, you know, like a lot of modern firewalls that you can say, block this IP block from this country. There's nothing wrong with if you're not doing any business in China, just blocking all of China's IP space. You're probably stops some random stuff. I get that. But that is not what they're saying here and not valid, right? Because, hey, guess what? You've got malware in your, in your environment and it's out attacking somebody else. Does that mean that you're actually, you know, the cause of that malware and exactly. someone should take that into account? Exactly. It, that, that's it exactly. You know, especially the more, you know, the more malicious, I, I would say it's almost, it's almost the inverse, right? Because <laughs> the more malicious stuff, you know, the, these attackers are, you know, they've figured this out already. It's not like they're popping boxes to drop command and control servers on somebody else's box. That's that would right. never happen. Never, no, ever. They go to a colo and they buy a spot to put their server up to coast their command and control server every time. But, you know, you, 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 did, you did raise a good point that, if again, if you don't have business doing with 
you know, uh, you don't have business in the Ukraine or Russia or, you know, or even the U.S., right? Block it, right? It it just lowers the amount of, you know, of sources of threat. But yeah. But I don't think it is materially helpful in prioritizing which things you you should be responding to. I, I just don't. Um, so anyway, uh, the next, the next lovely thing to know about malware before driving it out is severity. And I think the first sentence of this section was that less than 10% of malware downloads lead to infection. And what, you know, what they're saying is try to do some amount of triage based on the number of downloads of this malware you see, the number of infections, the number of CNC callbacks, and use that as some objective reference point. And, you know, maybe there's some... You know, there's there's some validity there, but I would tell you if you have the ability to see, you know, CNC call, to count CNC callbacks, maybe you should block it. Yeah, I'm I'm I would really love to know the assumptions of what gear you've got instrumenting your your environment for this discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they sort of have this this prejudice or bias towards network-based monitoring, which, by the way, I, I appreciate and I like, and I want this level of monitoring. But this assumption is that your first indication is by network-borne monitoring. Like your FireEye picked it up, but you know that it didn't, it wasn't successful on your endpoint because your vulnerability manager, you know, it was a, as a Windows malware and it was going after a Linux box. I can get that. You don't have to worry about it as much about that. But I just, there's some weird assumptions that went into this article that I don't fully understand um, because they're not explained. But all that being said, there's a little bit of validity in here. Make sure that the box is actually compromised before you go yank it off the network. I get that. Um, But to wait for it to start doing a bunch of command and control traffic and that sort of stuff is just asking for trouble. Yeah, uh, you know, if I, I will tell you, if you have the ability to 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 see the CNC traffic, you know, I, maybe maybe you do triage it based on the systems that are pinging out most, right? But you better be blocking all that stuff and and putting it into the hopper to go remediate. The other problem is, you know, show me a one hundred percent reliable CNC traffic detector, and I could well, make a million dollars. That was the the thing I was going to say next is. You know, with uh, with a lot of the new, some of the new hotness, right? You know, a lot of CNCs moving to peer to peer. Yeah, and it, you know, HTTPS, and well, you know, it's getting much more difficult. CNC is going to find any way it can to get out through your firewall, right? You know, and so they're getting very good about finding all sorts of different ways. Yeah, but what if your what if the CNC is a, uh, you know, another workstation on your network? Uh, that's a good point. Well, that's a good point. I think then you resign as CIO. I think that's that's, <laughs> that's what we've learned. Very clearly. <laughs> All right, right. Let's, let's finish the last point so we can move off this article of pain. All right. Uh, last is remediation basics. And this is the part I agree with, which is to ID and block the source of the malware, which, again, assumes that you know where the source is. And often you need to do... Some amount of forensic analysis to figure that out, by the way. Uh, 
which kind of goes counter to the whole point of the article. Uh, you need to ID and block the CNC traffic. And the most important thing in my mind is to ID and clean the infected computers, uh, which is almost always a reimage. Yes. So there we I go. Jerry, I sometimes think you pick these stories just to get my blood pressure up. I do. Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, trying to look out for you. Uh, so anyhow, moving on from that one to a, a little a little better story. This one comes from, oh my goodness, also CSO Online. And the title is Why You Need to Segment Your Network for Security. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you a disclaimer. This one requires you to be a CSO insider before you can read the whole thing. But, you know, it's a good article. Um, I'm not trying to pimp CSO, but I think it's worth reading. They, it's not hard to sign up. They just want your email and then they'll spam you. You know, hopefully if you've gotten this far in your career, you know how to handle that. <clears throat> Anyhow. So this article was written by a pen tester named Mark Wolfgang. And uh, basically he's conveying his experiences and, and lessons learned from his pen test engagements on the importance of properly segmenting your network. And I, for one, and I know you are too, am a pretty big advocate of, of network segmentation. It is a very fundamental thing. Yep. And, um, you know, there, let's see, he goes through, uh, he goes through some, some, observations that segmentation isn't done properly in a lot of cases. And he gives two reasons. And one was that people don't understand uh, their organization's business drivers. And so basically how that their company or their organization makes money and what the interrelationships between different things are, it's probably not worded really well. Uh, number two is to is that they don't understand how attackers operate. And I think that particular point is critically important. I see this all the time that security architects are, and, and I apologize to the academics, right, but are, are kind of academic. And they don't think about things from the perspective of an attacker. They think about things from a you know a, a fluffy high level best practices network diagram or net, network architecture perspective and it's you know it, it fails miserably and we see things like target happen because of it yeah i agree 100 percent. so the only thing i would say is most security architect architects there's some good ones out there i'm not gonna uh, throw them all uh, absolutely Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, obviously, there's a, there's a spectrum here, right? There's people who do it horribly and <laughs> people that do it really, really well. And, and everywhere in between. The tough part here is, though, how do I want to say this succinctly? You have a really good opportunity to do this when you're building a fresh network. It's really tough to do this after the network's already built in production. 
but it is important to reevaluate this. How you design your network and how you segment your network with security controls is as important as the technology you're putting in there to stop malware. Yeah. Yep. You know, it, it's, and this very rarely ever is talked about because nobody is marketing, you know, network design as a box you buy from, you know, your favorite software vendor. Right. Because it's, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, it's not, it doesn't have blinky lights. It's not the new sexy hotness. Right. You know, a lot of, a lot of security is a lot of good security is unsexy kind of just wrote hard work. Yeah. And this, but is, this I is, think, another case. Absolutely. And it's something that we need to keep reevaluating and keep thinking about and keep, you know, at the end of the day, it's about designing with the concept of what's my worst case scenario. Right. Uh, and segmentation is your stopgap. It's like your, your sell order if the stock falls too far, right? It is the this far, no farther kind of thing that at least can limit your damage. But it's tough. Right. But I will tell you that, you, you know, when you do that, you still have to understand the interrelationship between systems. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain yes. more about that. Right. So, so he goes on and talks about how you might, some different ideas and how you might want to segment your systems, like by operating system or by functional group or, or maybe some combination of the two. And, you know, maybe you want to consolidate all the administrative interfaces of your infrastructure onto a VLAN or, or all of your IT administrators onto one VLAN so that, you know, somebody in marketing gets compromised, they can't uh, jump over and attack somebody, uh, somebody over on the IT side. But, you know, the, the, the thing that fails there quite often is you know, some of the basic infrastructure, right? So if you've got a reflection point that you're not thinking about, right? So if you have, let's say, active directory domain controllers that kind of straddle logically all those networks, if I compromise a marketing system, you know, I can bounce off that and get to one of those IT systems. Or maybe I don't even need to because now I'm on the domain controller. And, you know, so I see, I see problems like that uh, happening quite often where, you know, w the intention was there to segment the network, but they really didn't think through how things could go wrong. And, and you know, because of that, we see some problems. The other thing I'll tell you is that when you do things like, let's say, segment or, or consolidate all of your, uh, all of your IT you know, administrators on a network, you know, now you have a concentration problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and whether it's, you know, IT people or whether it's administrative interfaces for your switches or whether it's your exchange servers or, or however you segment it, you really need to think about how you are going to differentiate that network from a control perspective from one another, right? So if you, let's say you have all of your administrator, your domain admins sit on this network. It's not, in my mind at least, it's not just adequate to move them off to their own VLAN. You really need to think about maybe you know, no internet access 
from that from that VLAN or 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 something, right? You need to you need to be very thoughtful about how you're going to control things in and out. And now he he goes through and says that um, you really need to look at each of these segments, uh, the traffic that flows into them, and and only only allow that which is absolutely needed and, and have a default deny inbound. And I would add to that that you need a default deny outbound too. Mm-hmm. It's not just inbound. It's also outbound. Now, in all fairness, this makes your life as a firewall admin or whatever it is you're using to control much more difficult. Absolutely. Uh, you really have to know the business probably better than the developers do. Because they don't give a damn what things run on what ports or what connects to what. And you're going to be doing a ton of troubleshooting all day long because everybody's going to blame the firewall all day long first. What's a port? Yeah. But that's the price of doing business. And that's a, you know something you've got to figure out for your organization if we're willing to pay that price. Yeah. Just like that, any other. I, right, right. I think, that, I, I think that the way to couch this is you, know, you, can, you can go to very very lengthy extents and, and very crazy extents to, to protect things, but it might not be necessary in your environment. You know, you might not care. It, it might not be economically viable or sensible to, to do that kind of thing, but you've got to figure that out for yourself. Yeah. But I, th- I think you can't, you can't, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is segmentation is hard you really have to understand this very well. And I see all too often people think that they've done a good job of segmenting their networks and they haven't. To paraphrase John Wayne, information security is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. (laughs) Well said. This this is why I don't get invited to give keynotes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or graduation, you know, speeches or someday, someday. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on. The next story is from Brian Krebs and the title is Thieves Jam Up Smuckers in Card Processor. The Smuckers part of this story, I think is is yeah, pretty straightforward. They were part of the cold fusion botnet and they had they had some data stolen right and not a lot there the the second part of the article is where my attention goes to there's a company called secure pay and secure pay uh, showed up as well as smuckers and a, a few others as compromised so they were you know they showed up on this botnet panel control panel that Krebs saw and Krebs contacted the COO, a person named Tom Tesmer, and uh, at SecurePay, and basically told him, "Hey, you know, uh, I saw your company is has been owned." And Tom downplayed it, totally denied it. Not uh, that was a that was an acquisition. You know, we shut all those systems off a long time ago. They were out of control. And, and Krebs came back and said, well, I think, uh, I think you need to take another look because here's 5,000 transactions that, that happened since you shut that stuff off. 
And, uh, and Tom basically said, oh, you, you might be right. And, and by the way, we saw a, our, our WAF, our wonderful WAF, fire an event about the time that that data was stolen. Uh, but, you know, that event went to our data center and really don't know what happened after that. And to me, the lesson here is, you know, number one, you, sh- you should probably, especially when somebody from the media calls you, you may want to do the, hey, you know what? I'll get back to you kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> because you don't want to look like a dumbass. Um, and and the other, the other is, this is the more important thing, I think, is that if you have a WAF that sees something, right? And, you know, you have... In this particular case, I don't know if it's true or not, right? But, uh, you know, he says they saw something. Follow up on it. You know, if you send it to your data center, if you outsource something, this kind of goes back to what you were saying last week, Andy, about if you outsource something, test it every now and then. You know, yeah. see if they're see how they're responding to this. And I think this, assuming, you know, everything is, is, is accurate in the story, you know, this is an example where, their outsourced service dropped the ball. Yep. So. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can blame your outsourcer, but it's still your problem. Absolutely. You still own the consequence. That's right. That's right. You'll notice the data center company wasn't even named in this article. So uh, the the second story, uh, this was kind of a two-part story, is about the Sally Beauty. Uh, Sally Beauty is a company here in the U.S. And I suppose similar to Target, uh, they had a lot of credit cards stolen, 282,000. You know, I don't know what percentage of, of their businesses it is, but I suspect given that they're not the scale of Target, that's probably a substantial percentage of their, their card transactions. Um, you know, they... I guess their bank notified them that they, uh, they they found that they were the source of the breach, and uh, and I guess coincidentally, a a tripwire alert, no real context of where it was or or what the alert was, a tripwire alert uh, let them know that something was amiss, and they apparently shut off all of their internet connectivity. I, I suppose they classified it as external communications and hired Verizon Enterprise Services to come in and investigate. But Verizon Enterprise Services, uh, and I guess with their own security team, couldn't find any evidence of data being stolen. And and this is a this is a good example to me of that old saying that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And, and so, you know, I, I, obviously we don't have a lot more details, uh, but, you know, I, I, it's, well, it'd be interesting to find out if, this, if, if they weren't able to track it down because they didn't have data available or, you know, or, or what the, the, the reason was. Well, my understanding is that in some of these cases, the way the card issuer is finding this is they're looking at breached cards and they're looking at a common point of purchase. Correct. 
So it's not like they've got a smoking gun of CNC traffic that they can point them to or anything along those lines, um, which makes it a little tougher for somebody like Sally to, if they're not equipped with good forensic information and tools, to figure this out, which you know lends itself to maybe you should go contract with a high-end consulting firm to be really, really sure before you say, not us. Correct. But, uh, you know, I think in in their case, they hired Verizon, which is one of the high-end, you know, one of the high-end companies. They're kind yeah. of up there with, with uh, Mandiant and, and other mm-hmm. companies like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I, I it, it there's really no context to say, you know, hey, we, you know, we had all these logs and we didn't see anything or if it was, you know, well, there weren't any logs to look at. So, you know, we don't, we don't really know. Hopefully there'll be some more, more details in the future for us to, to, to maybe understand what, what in particular happened. But it does seem on the surface, at least, like Sally's response was reasonable. You know, they, uh, again, we kind of have to take it at face value, right? Right. They, they saw an alert. They didn't understand it. They shut off their connectivity. They hired, you know, a competent company to come in and investigate. Mm-hmm. You know, what else can you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if we're just looking at the fact that the common point in purchase is Sally, that is not 100% definitive. Correct. And it also isn't 100% indicative that it's on their network. Yeah, I mean, it could be uh, it could be lots of skimmers. Or, I mean, there's yeah, other it's explanations. A yeah, that's a tough one. It would it would make me nervous as hell if I were on the Sally IT team, though. Absolutely, <laughs> I'd be pretty damn paranoid for a while. Um, it's an interesting story, though. It, we know something happened. We know that it may have something to do with cards that you know are associated with Sally's beauty, but we don't know what. Yeah, and, and by the way, I, I have to tell you, you know, Krebs does a really nice job of describing the whole economy around these attacks. So we're only talking about, you know, the, the company, but he, he does a lot of, uh, a lot of coverage of the actual, you know, the, the rest of the story, you know, how they, how they, the criminals are off selling the cards and whatnot. And, you know, I'm, I want to take a, I want to take a quick diversion off of this because I had a debate with someone recently about, you know about this economy, the economy of uh, of malware right now, and it's it's really interesting that again there is there is this entire economy around these attacks. You know, you have you've got the producer of the malware, you've got the distributor of the malware, you've got in the middle, you've got the person who who is kind of guiding a particular attack against particular companies. And then you have marketplaces to sell the cards, and then you've got people who buy those cards, and in in turn, you know, do the the um, you know the fraudulent activities and, and kind of monetize what was stolen. But that you know everybody in that chain is kind of targeted, except that person in the middle. We never ever hear about that person in the middle. You know, we hear about like the the person who wrote um, black hole being arrested or we hear about the Carter forums, you know, the operators of the Carter forums being arrested or the, you know, the people who are out, um, you know, with the stolen cards 
being arrested, but we never ever hear about that middle that middle part. And that tells me that this is a really a really dangerous marketplace because those people in the middle are very well insulated and uh, law enforcement has not been very effective at tracking them down. And the people at each of the ends, the, the, the malware authors and, you know, the, the carding sites and the people who buy the cards, those are commodities. As soon as one, soon as one disappears, somebody else is there to take their place. So I think this is a, a serious growth market and we as defenders really need to pay attention because this is, I think, going to become a really dangerous space coming, you know, coming up. Yeah, you know, I'd say that I think Brian Krebs knows so much about the ecosystem of this malware because he actually runs it. That's the thing where I'm going to start. <laughs> oh, my. <sighs> That's a joke. Just, yeah. just for the record. Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. Please, please don't sue me. Please. Yeah, but... <laughs> I, uh, I I have a ton of respect for the uh, the journalism Brian does, and you know he he puts himself out there. You know he's he's been swatted I think a couple of times, and yeah. he's had he's had heroin mailed to his house, and yeah, he's fearless. You got to give him that. He is absolutely fearless. So, anyhow, that concludes another wonderful episode of the Defensive Security Podcast. It has been a pleasure. This was a, a very good one. Thank you for the discussion. Always. Thank you. And uh, thank you to all of our 10 listeners. Yes. Yes. You tell your friends. You know, if we get up to 12, maybe we'll throw a party. <laughs> and uh, stay tuned for uh, uh, new audio gear next show. Absolutely. That's exciting. Absolutely. And, uh, you know. Maybe some other fun new stuff. We'll see. Yep, yep. We'll be, uh, you know, we'll be talking about that as uh, as it comes along. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, you can find the show in the show notes with all the links to the stories we talk about on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. And by the way, we're really interested in in hearing feedback. You know, if you have other ideas, if you disagree with something we say, we love to hear about it. You know, we're not, we're not mean. We would love to hear other opinions, other views, other ideas on, uh, on defensive techniques against some of these things. You know, let us know the, the whole point of this is to raise the bar for everybody. So, you know, give us some feedback. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter at DefensiveSec can follow Mr. Kellett at Lurg, L-E-R-G, and you can follow me at Malicious Link. And with that, I will bid you adieu till next week when hopefully our audio will be way better than this week. Good night. Goodbye. Take care.